And I thought, what do I want the church to know? What do I want you to hold on to tightly? And uh, I came to this passage in John 15. And I chose it because it, it gives directions. It says, remain in Jesus, spoiler alert. But as I continued studying, I found that there was an awful lot more there exactly for you and I in these days as we think about the closing of one chapter and the opening of another. So who do we need to be? What do we need to do as things are changing around us? Well, first of all, uh, we need to remain in Jesus. Like I said, that was the spoiler. This is the big idea of John chapter 15. Remain in Jesus. Now, if you hear that, you probably have a lot of questions. How do I remain in Jesus? What happens when I remain in Jesus? What about if I don't remain in Jesus? What will my life be like? What will the church be like? And so on and, and so forth. Well, we're going to see if we, can, if we can get to all of these questions this morning. So first of all, Jesus says that uh, he, he gives the command repeatedly, remain in me. Remain in me. And why is it that we need to do this? We can give some Sunday school answers, right? Well, you know, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is Lord. We're supposed to do the stuff that he says. But Jesus wants to go deeper with his disciples in this. So first, he gives them the imagery. Well, really, this whole passage contains the imagery of a grapevine and the fruit that grows off of it. And you heard that this is not an image that Jesus invented in this moment as he's speaking to the disciples. It was an image his disciples would have understood. Because they understood that the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament, throughout their scriptures, were often called the vine. They belonged in, they were a vineyard. And God was expecting produce from them, fruit of them. Uh, we've got several of you here who actually own orange groves. Some of you who worked in orange groves or other sorts of orchards and groves out there. And if you have an orchard and you tend it and you take care of it and you fertilize it and you spend time on it and you spend money on it, and then at the end of the year there are no oranges, there's no fruit whatsoever, you got a problem, don't you? You just wasted all of that time and effort and energy. It could have gone into something else, but now it's, it's all been used up and used up for no purpose at all. You have no harvest. And when God uses this imagery of the vine, that passage out of Isaiah is typical He's usually saying, where's my fruit? I have given you so much. Where's my fruit? That sounds a little pushy of God, doesn't it? I mean, live and let live, buddy. Come on. I got my own free will to live my own life the way I, I, I want to do it. Well, would you say the same thing about your children? Would you, you would say, I want you to go out, I want you to thrive, I want you to use your gifts, I want you to be happy, I want you to find joy. But you wouldn't say, I am going to be thrilled if your joy is becoming a mass murderer. As a matter of fact, you'd probably regret maybe some of your choices, but you may even regret the fact that you became a parent in the first place because of the pain that it has cost you, because of the damage that it's done. 
See, it's not wrong for people to want to return on their labor and the lives of others. Some of you have had friends and family members who have struggled with addiction. As a matter of fact, probably most of us have. And I bet that there were moments in that struggle where you were asking yourself, is it worth it? Maybe you felt bad about asking that question, but it's a fair question. Is it worth it? A number of you have seen those folks grow up, grow out of their addiction with the help of God. Some of you are still there. Some of you have lost those people, and you'll never get them back. Is it worth it? I think God is right to want fruit out of his people. Because here's the other thing about about wanting fruit, about wanting an appropriate fruit out of the the people you created and the people that you called or even the people that you are related to, the people you, you parented. Fruit brings us joy, doesn't it? Fruit brings us joy. To have a productive life actually does something in our hearts that brings us joy and excitement. And it's something no one can ever take away from us either. There are a lot of things in life that might bring us joy. If the Huskies win the national championship on Monday, I'll be really excited for, you know, a week or two, and then I'll move on with my life. It'll be a great week or two, but that'll be it. But yet the, the fruit that comes from being a good parent to my children, God willing, help me to be, the fruit that comes from building something into someone's life that lasts forever. The fruit that comes from, uh, or the, the joy that comes from the fruit of really helping somebody. That's the sort of thing that no one can take away from me. And that will always bring me joy and hope for the next moment in my life. And I bet you can think of things in your life, too where that's been the case. You think of raising, you, you go to the, the wedding of one of your children or one of your grandchildren, you think it was worth it, and this moment is going to stay with me for a long time. And a hundred other things. That retirement party, I know retirement parties, they can kind of be a two-edged sword because on the one hand, you're like, well, now what? Some of you are like, I don't need someone to give me something else to do. I'll be fine retired. But the other part of it is looking back, I hope, on the work that you've done and the career that you've had and saying, that was good. That was good. And having a a healthy pride in it, not, look how awesome I am, but wow, the things that I did there, they were worth doing with God's help, and they were well done. (laughs) Praise God. See, God's right to want fruit, both because he has the right to expect fruit out of his creatures, out of his creation, and especially out of his people, but because wanting fruit from his people is something he also wants for his people. It's something that gives us joy. You know, do you, we've been connected here at this church for a long time, and this church has grown over the last 10 years. And so whether you've been here for, for 50 years or 10 years or two years, you've seen the growth in the church. And does it feel good to be part of that? It does. It's exciting. That fruit feels good. 
But God tells us the only way to real lasting fruit is if we remain in Jesus. Jesus, he says says this, remain in me, verse 4, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I mean, this is, he's using something everyone would have known. He's, he's using something that you know. If you cut off a branch from your orange tree in your backyard, will it produce fruit? No. It'll dry out and be dead and be good for nothing but the fire. Coincidentally, that's exactly what Jesus says happens to the branches that get cut off the tree. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. So if we want to, if you want to see this church continue to grow, let me ask you, what is the most important thing that you need to do? Stay connected to the vine, right? Remain in Jesus, as the analogy is telling us. Now, God is going to give you people within this church to help you do that. He's going to put people in specific places. He is going to call a pastor at some point who is going to help you to do that. But is it the pastor who gives the growth? No. No. It's Jesus. Remain in Jesus. And that's the way to a thriving church, to a thriving life. That's a bit of good news, isn't it? You're thinking, I knew we didn't need you after all, Ian. That's right. <laughs> but here's what happens when you remain in the vine, too. Right? When you remain in the vine, you produce fruit. And that fruit is really just every good thing that God promises. It is your own spiritual growth. It's the spiritual growth of the people around you. It's growing justice and understanding in your society, in your life, in the places that you impact and that we impact together as a church. It's new people meeting Jesus. As a matter of fact, probably more than anything else, that's what John has in mind whenever he uses that word fruit. All of these these things are true. All of these things happen. But if you remain in the vine, something else is going to happen too. Did, Did you catch it there? He says it really early on. He says he cuts off every branch in Jesus. Every every unfruitful branch in the vine gets cut off. But every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? You guys looking forward to being pruned? Of course not. Of course not. That's okay. But let me ask you something. Uh, if, and I'm going to ask for the farmers especially to help me out here this morning because, you know, I know how to kill a plant. That's what I can do. But what, what happens, you gardeners and you farmers, when you prune? What happens to the branches that are left? They grow better. They grow more fruit. Now, what, is it, what does Jesus mean when he says that we will be pruned when we're in the vine? Well, first of all, I think it's really helpful to know that it's the Father himself who prunes. So that means that whatever is happening in your life, whatever pruning is happening, it's not the result of an accident. It's not random chance. It's not that nasty person down the street doing it to you. The Father is the one who prunes. You might use that nasty person down the street. I hope you're not the nasty person down the street. (laughs) 
but he is the one who prunes. And he is the master gardener. He knows exactly where to cut so that you will thrive. He is the loving gardener. He wouldn't do it unless it was for your good. He is the one who prunes. If a branch could think and feel like you and me, then it might object to being pruned until it saw the increase of fruit. And we are being pruned right now, all of us. Don't don't mistake it. Not just as individuals, but as a church. Our separation, you and, and me. The time without a pastor that's before you, it's a pruning. It's meant to make you more fruitful, not less. And I know that's easier for me to say than it is for you to live. But it doesn't make the promise any less true. Let me give you an example, because I'm being pruned here too. Last Sunday, I preached my first sermon at Carson City. And I worked hard on a familiar passage. It's like, I'm not going to choose the hardest passage in the Bible for my first impression. uh, Because I'll make a bad impression. I will choose one I know well. And I worked really hard on it. Besides the fact that it was familiar and I knew it well, I worked really hard trying to think, I I need to produce something good here. And I failed. I worked and I worked and I added to my knowledge, but it just wouldn't come together into a sermon. I had a bunch of loosely connected facts and those do not make a good sermon. And I prayed desperately and I started to ask God, are you really sending us to Carson City? Because you better be, because we already told everyone we're going. They're going to make us move out of the manse. What are we going to do? And then it was time to get up front and preach. Right? I'm still, I, I come there on Sunday, and I've got notes, and I'm like, this is not a good sermon. This is going to be bad. So I, it's time to get up front and preach. And I realize I'm supposed to uh, do the New Testament reading. The tradition in the church is the liturgist does the Old Testament reading. You know, the the, the uh, preacher does the New Testament reading. So I get up front to do the New Testament reading. And I realize I don't remember what the New Testament reading is. And no one gave me, D wasn't here to give me my script this morning. So I'm really in trouble. So I'm like, I'm using my tablet for notes because I don't have a printer to print them out. And by the way, when, the more notes I have, the less prepared I am. That's actually how it works. You see me coming up with a bunch of page. It's like, oh no, this is going to be a bad sermon. But Ian, you know, I, so I, I get up there and I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking on my tablet trying to find uh, the, the passage that I'm supposed to read and what happens, but all my notes disappear and I lose them all. It's like, I'm being pruned hard at the moment, God. And what happened is I was absolutely dependent on the Holy Spirit, not by choice, but by design. And by the way, this is exact, almost exactly what happened the first time I preached here. I came to this church with no sermon on Easter Sunday, the worst Sunday to not be prepared, despite all of my hard work. And I went into that room right there, and I, I prayed, and I said, God, what am I going to do? And one of, the, uh, one of the times in my life where I, I tangibly heard God speak in my heart, I said, Ian, whose, whose people are these? I said, God, they're your people. He said, Ian, whose gospel is this? He said, God, it's your gospel. He said, Ian, whose power is it? You're supposed to be relying on here at the moment. I said, well, God, it's your power. So he says, so Ian, who is responsible to preach to these people this morning? He said, well, God, I guess you are. And I went up and I preached, and it, it was good. And I preached on Sunday at Carson City, and it was good because of who God was, because of remaining in Jesus, Because of showing up when it was hard. Because of praying 
as I was getting ready, like, God, this isn't going to be good. Help me out because of all of these things. So branches that bear fruit will be pruned. And we may say, God, I wish you weren't pruning me. But that process makes us more fruitful and leads to a greater joy. And then finally, how do we remain? Because right? they keep telling you, you got to remain in Jesus. you got to abide in Jesus. So how do we do this? Well, Jesus, he really gives us kind of a, a simple answer several times, several different ways. In verse 7, Jesus says this, If you remain in me and my words remain in you. Then he goes on just a little bit later, uh, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. And Jesus says, you're going to do it just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Jesus is saying, whatever happens to me, if you just do what I do, you'll get the same. You too will be resurrected, although John's, uh, Jesus' disciples didn't know it yet. Let Jesus' words abide in you. First, Jesus' actual words and teachings. That's, why, that's one of the reasons why in the Westminster Confession, which is one of our, in our book of uh, confessional standards, they say there are three means of grace. It is the word, the sacraments, and prayer. So, and it'll get even more specific, the word rightly preached and proclaimed. So be in God's word to understand it. Seek help to understand it. Listen to Jesus' actual words and teaching. And it's not like a magic spell. Like if I just say Jesus' words and teachings, you know, now all of a sudden I'm abiding and everything's fine. If I just read those, then now everything's fine. But, but instead, his words are powerful as we absorb them and as we start to let them change the way we understand our world and change the way we live. That's why obedience matters in this. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love. So be in Jesus' words and let them remain in you and pray over them. And it's even okay to pray, Jesus, you said this and I don't understand. Help me to understand. Do it in community. Do it in your small group Bible studies. Do it with the people that you meet at the church and outside of the church and talk about Jesus' word. Talk about what he said. And it's not just what Jesus said, though. When Jesus says, let my word abide in you, let my words abide in you, it, that word that he uses, it, it means the entirety of his message. So not just the individual words, the entirety of his message. And Jesus didn't just say a message, he lived a message. For example, Jesus didn't just heal people out of compassion or to show his power, although those things were true. He did it to substantiate and proclaim the message that he preached. He said, look, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. Let me show you what that looks like. Sickness, be gone. Demons, be cast out. Death, be reversed. Remain, do what Jesus did. Follow where Jesus went. Believe what Jesus believed. And when we do these things, we are abiding in him, in part because that's exactly what he did. You know, Jesus, 
He is fully human and he's fully the son of God at the same time. Fully human and fully divine. How did he do his miracles? Anybody know? By what power did he do his miracles? By God's power. But was it his own power as God? No. No, the scripture makes it clear. The gospels make it clear. He did it by the power of the Holy Spirit, even though he had his own power at his command at every moment. He lived just like you and me because we don't have the power of being the only son of God, do we? We can't just look at somebody and go, you know, by the power that created the universe with the word, I can, you know, I heal you. We don't have that strength in us where just our words change the nature of reality. But because Jesus wanted to show us how to belong to God, instead of using his own power, he relied on the Holy Spirit for everything he did. Now, maybe that seems kind of like splitting hairs in a way, but I, I don't think so. I think it reminds us that the life that Jesus lived is entirely within our grasp. If only we will remain in him and trust in the Holy Spirit's power in our own lives. The end of verse 7, I read the first half of it to you. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, he then says, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. He's saying, live that Holy Spirit life. And if we're remaining in him, if Jesus' words are, are in me, then we're not going to be saying, I have a McLaren, right? I have a new Audi. Dee got to drive an Audi for the last uh, couple of weeks when she got a rental because her car was in the shop. That was pretty neat for her. But that's not what this is about. It's not about, you know, settle all your old scores. It's not about realize all of your dreams that you've dreamed independently of who God is. Because that's not remaining in, in Jesus' words. See, we're, we're tempted to substitute the joy that God gives us for the joy that we can scrabble together ourselves. And God's saying, yeah, I, if your prayers don't get answered, <laughs> it's because you got the wrong heart in you. You're asking for the wrong things. But if your prayers do get answered, you, know, you notice how Jesus he taught us to pray like a actually surprisingly profound prayer. Maybe it's not surprisingly profound, but I think we often forget how profound it is. I love how he puts two things back to back. He says, pray that, pray that thy will be done, thy kingdom come. Back to back. Thy will be done, thy kingdom come. And that's the prayer that keeps Jesus on the cross, by the way. Because remember what Jesus prayed before the cross. He said, if it's possible to not do this, let's do that. Let's find a different way. But not my will. Your will. In the same way, we look at Jesus' miracles. We say, yeah, I want that. But we recognize we're all going to die. Sorry to let you down this morning. Unless Jesus comes back first, we're all going to die. That means that somebody's cancer is not getting healed. That means that somebody's heart condition is going to kill them. means that Ryan's story is not going to be every story. But it, 
there is also a day coming. There's also a day coming when the faith will be sight, when death will finally be buried in the grave Jesus has already dug for it, when all the sad things will come untrue, as Tolkien said. There is a day coming, if only we will remain in him.